and welcome to the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Munte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at palia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. Today, we're thrilled to bring on Nigel Warburton to the Palia podcast. Nigel is a writer, philosopher, and podcaster himself. He podcasts Philosophy Bites. His books include A Little History of Philosophy, The Art Question, and for our purposes, Free Speech, A Very Short Introduction. Nigel recently joined the founding faculty of the London Interdisciplinary School and is a consultant senior editor at Eon and the philosophy editor at Five Books. Nigel, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. We are here to talk about free speech, about which you've, you've literally written the book. And among the hottest of hot potatoes in today's culture wars, after COVID-19, the term cancel culture must be one of 2020's most exciting neologisms. But before we get to the politics of free speech today, I thought it would be good if we could do a sort of tour of the horizon of the philosophical underpinnings of freedom of speech. So can I start with that question? What is the premise of free speech? Well, I don't think there is just one premise. There are a number of different arguments that philosophers and political theorists use to defend extensive free speech. It's it's difficult to know to, where to start with that question. Let's zoom in on free speech. The free bit sometimes gets confused with unlimited, the notion of freedom as being unlimited. But most people who defend free speech, almost everybody, stop short of what's often called license, where anything goes. And it's for them, then just a question of where do you draw the line? How much freedom of expression do you have? There are always some things which are going to be beyond the pale, whether that is incitement to violence, words which incite violence very specifically, or whether it's certain kinds of pornographic writing or or, uh, visual materials, whether it's um, false advertising. There are most, if not almost all, (laughs) defenders of free speech defend free speech up to a point. And then the question is where that point is. That's the first issue, really. Freedom of speech isn't just anything goes. And then the question is, what are the reasons that you give for drawing the line where you want to do that? And that's where the philosophy comes in. So a very common justification is the argument that the world will be a better place if everybody's given a chance to express their opinions up to the point of inciting violence, that that there is something almost like a hydraulic model that um, you're like a kettle coming to the boil and if you don't get to express your opinions you blow up that's a very simplistic model but there's a sense in which everybody psychologically feels better at being able to express their opinions so that's one kind of argument consequence based other ones are about individual rights so there might be um, a claim that there is some kind of either a natural right to freedom of expression or some kind of right that is justified maybe on pragmatic grounds. There's also a sense in which this is often tied with the freedom of belief. 
that in terms of human rights, in terms of law, people have a freedom to believe in whatever religion or absence of religion they want to, allegedly. But then the question is, if you, is it just enough to believe without being, being able to express those beliefs? So there might be a kind of a tie-in with natural rights and the justification for natural rights there. I mean, there are any number of different um, justifications that people give for defending freedom of expression. The question is, which are the good, good, which are the best arguments for extensive freedom of expression, and where do you want to draw, draw the line? Those, for me, are the key philosophical questions. Gotcha. Yes, I wanted to pull out these sort of two strands that you describe, discuss in your book. One, I suppose, is the this instrumental approach which is that freedom of speech is both better for getting to the truth and probably also better for getting to democracy, um, or it's a fundamental premise of democracy, and democracy itself is a good. And then that other premise, which I suppose is the moral or individual one around the individual rights of, the, of, 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 of a person to express themselves, as if freedom of speech was actually something which attached itself to the individual. Yeah, so, so one of the most um, powerful set of arguments for freedom of expression is found in John Stuart Mill's um, On Liberty, the little book that came out in the same year as Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species, um, and wasn't eclipsed by that, <laughs> um, 1959, uh, sorry, start again, 1859, I think I've got that right, I better just check. You have, you have, you have, it's 1859 indeed. So this, there's a chapter of that book, I mean, the, gen- the, the book generally is the defence of a liberal position, arguing that there should be space for individuals to conduct what he calls experiments of living, choosing how they want to live without being forced into a particular way of being as a human being, up to the point where they start interfering with other people. So there's a kind of inviolable space around each individual, a freedom to experiment with what will make your life go best and a freedom to make your own mistakes. And then within that framework, which is driven by something that is usually known as the harm principle, the the idea that the only justification for a government to intervene, for other people to intervene to to control how an adult lives his or her own life is on the grounds that they might harm other people in the process of going about life the way they want to. It's not sufficient justification if you're going to harm yourself. so, so Mill was fundamentally anti-paternalist, or anti-maternalist, if you like. You know, paternalism treating people as a father would a child, doing things for their own good. He, he, he really felt that adults should be free to make their own mistakes, make their own choices about life. Partly because he felt that hum, human beings know much more about what will make their lives go well individually than states tend to. And um, so that's the context. And then in chapter two of the liberty of thought and discussion, he presents various arguments about why within that framework it's important to um, have extensive freedom of expression. Exactly in On Liberty, and I think exactly in that chapter, he also discusses this notion of the marketplace of ideas, a kind of a competitive space in which truth gets hammered out by a collective effort of of trial and error. It's an idea which people talk about a lot today and is contested both on the left and on the right. Both you and I spent too much time on Twitter. And there's constant attacks on this, on the, the flaws in this, this notion of the marketplace of ideas. Can you help us understand what, that, what, the, what the core notion is and, and, then, and then tell us whether you think it works? 
Well, Mel thought there was something very important about not just what you believe, but how you held that belief. So he was very clear that dead dogma, as he called it, was of little value to humanity. Things that you just learn because your parents have told you they have to be so, or other authorities just drum these things into you. They're not living beliefs. They're not held in a way which will motivate you to action generally. And they typically haven't been challenged significantly. He felt that living beliefs are beliefs which have survived a process of testing to destruction almost by um, putting them out there into this forum of discussion where people are free to present the strongest possible counter arguments and give the strongest evidence against your position. The, within this kind of ideal seminar of life, as it were, different participants express different views. And allegedly, and this is not something that Mill believes is bound to happen, we hope that truth will emerge victorious. But the point is that if you want to get closer to the truth about anything, and this seems pretty plausible to me, and it's very much embedded in scientific method, the best thing to do is to have your ideas challenged, preferably by people who are sincere about the challenge and aren't just playing devil's advocate. They genuinely believe that you're wrong and they want to tell you why you're wrong. And so for Mill, there's huge value in this collision of truth with error. And if you hold true beliefs going into this seminar of life, as it were, he, that's not his phrase, better by having your views challenged. And you may modify them in the light of the arguments and evidence. Ideally, you'd be the kind of person who would uh, modify your views if you hear good counter-arguments and so on. But the point is, if you're able to offer the counter-arguments and, and develop your ideas in contrast with people who disagree with you, those people end up doing you a big favour. So in this marketplace of ideas, there, isn't, there shouldn't be a lot of restrictions on what people can contribute. We have to have a kind of fearless challenge of ideas with positions which many people find uncomfortable. And Mill even says it could be expressed in quite aggressive ways it's dangerous to put too many limits of civility on how things are conducted because you could lose an important contribution to the debate if somebody who's not capable of suppressing their anger about the way that you've expressed yourself, if they can't enter the debate, you may have lost that wonderful moment in which your idea gets challenged and you maybe revise your opinion and you get closer to the truth. So it's sort of on the premise that if you're asking everybody to refute your ideas in Latin, you are massively selecting the group of people who can engage with you yeah exactly or if you i mean civility is a great virtue in in debate but if you set the level of civility too high there's a risk associated even with that so for mill the limit of freedom of expression was the point at which an individual or group of individuals incite violence against people causing people offense was very different in his view, from causing them harm. So he had a, some people would say, quite a simple psychological account. You know, offence is when you don't like what somebody said and harm is when you get hit, basically, or killed or something physically is done to you. It's, it's, it's quite crude like that, in a sense. We, we probably want to modify that today and recognise that it's possible to damage people psychologically with words. And that's where we get into kind of very delicate arguments about, okay, 
certain kinds of offence need to be tolerated for us to have any kind of discussion at all, because there's almost no topic on which somebody's not going to be offended by something. But if you allow people to say that my offence is actually a kind of psychological damage, so you can't say that because you're damaging me, you're harming me, that's a kind of violence against me. I think at that point, we have to look very closely and say, well, is that really the kind of violence that, for instance, a certain kind of hate speech could do to a child or a member of a a minority group, you know, repeated viciously with the view of, with the intent of harming that person? Or is it you've just expressed an opinion that somebody didn't like? I think there are many occasions when people too readily talk about the violence of language without recognising that's a kind of metaphor. Although you can do things with words, violence by words is not as common as as, as some people think. There are two key pieces there, just to tease out a little more. Yes, that question around a hate speech, which seems to be where the ways in which today, societally, we think about the violence that words can cause. That seems to be the sort of the legal bracket in which we understand violence caused by words that, as you say, John Stuart Mill himself sort of refused to acknowledge the psychological well, violence of Yeah, I don't think there offense. is a psychologically sophisticated account of, of what kind of damage can be done to people with words around for him. But, it, but, it, but now we can recognise that psychological damage could be far more long-lasting and more fundamental to some people than than, a phys- than physical damage can be, although they're not that easily separated because obviously there's a psychological impact of somebody doing violence to you physically. Yeah, yeah of course. And ultimately, um, you know, as a materialist, I would say, well, it is a kind of physical damage. You know, it's your, your it's about neuronal pathways at some level. So it's not it's not different in kind when something changes as a result of words. It's just that. Um, in these kinds of debates, we need to decide where to draw the line, and we shouldn't be there shouldn't be a knee jerk reaction that when some, somebody says something you dislike, that you label it as violent, because I think that doesn't do justice to to. I mean, if you've ever spoken to somebody who's been a victim of violence, it seems that obviously there's a spectrum or a number of spectrums or a number of different dimensions, but there are some threat that you know there's some sort of threshold of damage that has to be done before I would like to call something a violent act. But other people see that, yeah. see that differently, and I'm happy to debate with them. You know, I think that's the thing. There are plenty, is when there's no debate, that's when there's a problem. My people just label it violent and then shut down the debate because they disagree with it. That's the kind of speech that Mill would want to defend. He'd say, no, that's just causing you offence, and, and we should tolerate a, a certain amount of offence because that's the condition of having what is a benefit to society, which is a kind of public forum of uh, debate about what's true and what we, how we should live. Nigel, another point that you flag here is that Mill was talking about the value of falsehoods sincerely expressed. Um, the, the marketplace of ideas which he was imagining was one where sincere falsehoods would interact and battle off against um, eventual truths and the result would be a greater good for for truth itself epistemologically how do you deal with offense caused for offense's sake where the intent is harm in a sense it's not actually um, 
the furtherance of inquiry. Does that come under a different category of thought or comment? Well, it's it's interesting because sometimes there can be more than one intention in somebody saying something. So if somebody is systematically abusing another person and using the justification, oh, it's my freedom of expression to do that, within this million framework the, um, updated to allow the possibility of psychological harm, we might say, well, at a certain point you've tipped over. This is like, in Mill's example, waving a placard saying corn, diva, corn dealers are starvers of the poor outside a corn dealer's house. That, he said, would be an incitement to violence. Well, it's, you know, repeatedly being abusive to somebody in a way that uncontroversially is intended to harm them and is likely to harm them seems to be something that I would not want to defend on grounds of freedom of expression. I would draw the line the other side of that. But it's not straightforward because sometimes people are incredibly sensitive and will read microaggressions, which do exist, into things which are not microaggressions, for instance. So there's the sense in which somebody may feel that they are being targeted, but just them feeling targeted isn't sufficient grounds for saying that they have been targeted. And and these things are very delicate about where you draw the line, and I think it's often on a case-by-case um, basis that the complexity of a real-life case means you want to tease out those sorts of things and be prepared to discuss whether that is the right place to draw the line or not. I mean, within Britain, we have um, some laws which um, preclude certain kinds of incitement to racial hatred and religious hatred and hatred on grounds of gender or sexual orientation. And that seems to me radically different from the United States First Amendment position where you where is toleration of extent, very extensive, abusive um, speech. When I wrote the book, I was sort of more in favour of the American approach, but I now I've shifted more to the sense that laws which protect people, as long as they're applied fairly and in a sensitive way, sensitive to the particular case, might be better than the kind of laws which tolerate people putting up racist posters in the subway in, in America. What I'm trying to say is that for me, free speech isn't an absolute. It's something which we need to rethink in every, almost every month in, in relation to every sort of case that emerges into how people actually use the freedom of expression that they have and how the law works in a particular place in relation to that. Because you could have um, what seem like very tolerant laws, but if they're imposed in a in a very aggressive way or in an inconsistent way, that could be worse than having slightly more restrictive laws. Something else we haven't talked about as well, which was very important to Mill, it wasn't just about a matter of where legally you draw the line between tolerable and intolerable speech. It's also about what he called the, the tyranny of the majority. The difficulties placed before people who are different from the majority, different in their views or different in their lifestyles, often there's an incredible social pressure to conform. And he felt very strongly that society is better when we tolerate a, 
a very wide range of different ways of living, including different ways of different, different sets of beliefs. That's far better. I mean, he thought that, whether it's empirically true or not, he thought that was a better breeding ground for geniuses. And for, for him, geniuses are what helped society progress. That it almost by definition, somebody who's a real genius is very different from those people around him or her and will be perceived as a threat, as weird, as and may well be have have social pressure not to do the kinds of things they want to do. And he Mill saw that as a bad thing, that we should we should give people space to develop. And part of that is space to express their views and have them refuted or have them challenged. It's almost better to have somebody who is expressing a false opinion, but is expressing very forcefully and, force, and encourages people to think for themselves as a result, than to have many thousands of people all conforming to the kind of received opinion. I hear you. One of the criticisms of the marketplace of ideas is it's way too much like a marketplace. It's way too capitalistic, and it has a tendency towards monopoly. I think that Herbert Marcuse is somebody who's touched on the inequality of the space itself. It's very interesting because I think there is a a good argument that powerful people have access to channels of expression on the whole. And in particular, in particular, media moguls and people who pay them or whatever get a lot of access to the media to get their ideas promoted. And there are people who are relatively powerless in these public discussions and their viewpoints are often not listen to. So Miranda Fricker actually has written very interestingly about what she calls epistemic injustice. The idea that some people aren't treated seriously as sources of, of thought, of sources of information in the world. And so even if they do get to express their views, those views are not taken with the same um, seriousness as other people. So you might say like people from certain ethnic minorities or from certain who don't look the part or don't have haven't had the kind of refined public school education the way they express themselves may lead to them being taken less seriously even if what they're saying is very important and true than those who are suave and have had all the um, platforms given to them because of their position of power and in, in in society and in consequence having a kind of free market of ideas is a bit like that idea that freedom for freedom for the pike is death for the minnows something that isaiah berlin quotes in another context the idea that it's all very well if you're a pike you know because you've got big teeth and you can you can snap up the minnows but the idea that allowing people who are relatively powerless to speak in this free market of ideas is a bit like a market trader going up against a major supermarket who who can you know the supermarket can decide the price they buy goods from the from the farmer whereas the, the market trader probably get has to pay whatever the farmer asks but ultimately it's all about where you draw the line and and who gets to speak and who doesn't and for those people who find it difficult to speak or whose ideas don't seem to be taken seriously the idea of extensive freedom of expression may seem like a different kind of silencing because their ideas, they express their ideas and then nobody takes any notice. They're like Cassandra. 
the ideal that Mill talks about is something, you know, I, I mentioned the idea of it being a kind of seminar. There is something of that where people get to make their points and they get listened to and they engage with each other. The reality is people speak to different groups. We're not all speaking to each other. They cut across each other. They ignore people they don't want to hear and seek out, on the whole, people who reinforce their prior beliefs. We have that kind of blinkered approach to the world, most of us, where we're very happy when we spot something that is on our side and where there's an inconvenient argument on the other, we tend just not to notice it. And that's sometimes even unconsciously done, I believe, but sometimes it's consciously done. Some people have made much of how new social media allow us to filter out the people with whom we disagree very very easily. And I think John Stuart Mill would be the kind of person who would argue for following people with whom you strongly disagree because they're the ones that are going to make you think. But the temptation is always when somebody starts sounding off on Twitter or whatever is to block them or, or mute them, and then they're not part of the debate. So they may be expressing themselves, but you're not hearing them. And I think that's a genuine problem in a democracy if there are important contributions that people are unwilling to listen to, unwilling to even entertain, and because they are so convinced of their own right viewpoint on the world. And I think that is, so, that's a major teaching of philosophy, I think. For me, the, the ideal philosopher is somebody like Socrates, who has a kind of unusual combination of arrogance and humility. He's arrogant enough to question assumptions, to question received opinion. And that's what I think a good use of freedom of expression is, surely is, that we, you know, we at least raise the questions about whether the received opinion is correct, whether the um, suggested course of action is the right one. Um, we should have the freedom to do that. That's not just about me expressing myself. It's about pragmatically getting a better solution because we've preempted some of the sorts of mistakes that might otherwise be made and so on. So you have that arrogance so that allows you to do that, but you also have the humility to recognize that you could be wrong. And that's the hardest one That's <laughs> for everybody, Indeed. you know, because you, most of us think we can't be wrong. Okay, so in the interest of, of really taking the other side here, can you help us understand what the philosophical underpinnings are of those who truly do not believe in freedom of speech? Because it is by no means a fully won argument. Well, there's a, that's a very heterogeneous group. Some people are tyrants, and I'm sure in Belarus, people are prevented from saying a lot of true things by somebody at the top, a dictator who knows that if those ideas get circulated too much, they might threaten his power. So that's one motivation, is simply to maintain power. So you're not interested in truth, you're yeah. just interested in... Um, being the top dog. So that's that's one motivation. But that's comparatively rare and sort of... I mean, that's the kind of thing, presumably, that Machiavelli would recommend if you want to stay in power as a as a prince. You know, do the thing which um, right. will bring about the best consequence for you, which is to keep power. But most, most arguments that I've seen aren't, aren't defending a kind of tyranny in that way. There are arguments that there can be too much talk and not enough action. We have to come to a decision. We need a strong leader. We need people who are not critical but supportive of ideas. There's sometimes the feeling that when you have a 
a genuinely open discussion there's too much time given to the negative and not not enough time taking things forward so that's kind of psychological feeling that we're we're not being positive enough because we're testing ideas to destruction when we put them through this um, put throw them right. into this marketplace of ideas another motivation could be that your minority viewpoint will just get squashed in this marketplace something we've already discussed and there's no point in pretending that it's a genuine benefit to humanity to have this situation what it is is of um, an illusion of a serious debate when in fact it's just another way of those in power exerting their power over the people who seem to be given a voice but actually are just ignored all the same so that's on the left that's sometimes an argument that's used that you know if you're in a minority group what's the, let's have a, an open discussion about x and x turns out to be um, something for which the, the powerful have already decided what the outcome is going to be and they're just letting you let off steam that's that doesn't seem to be in your interests so that might be another reason but there may be religious there often are religious um, objections to freedom of expression with certain kinds of i don't know whether that's the correct term fundamentalist religion adherents are so certain of the truth and so certain that people who disagree with them are in error that they see no benefit in having a discussion about this or even in what they would see as others blaspheming their God against their God. And, you know, in some countries of the world, there are blasphemy laws which prevent certain sorts of ideas being expressed because it's just assumed that that, that, particular, religious, that particular religious viewpoint is the right view. And so there's, you know, it, it's 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 perceived as some kind of insult to God to give give airtime to any anything opposing that. So an atheist in in a religious dominated country will very quickly find that he or she can't express their true take on the world without getting probably legal and maybe um, violent consequences. I mean, there's just some. I mean, there, there may be many other reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Political cynicism, on the one hand, in the Lukashenko-Bielorus case, sort of political expediency on some level in terms of getting things done, the minority perspective, which would be drowned out in a, in a fully free speech environment, Epi epistemological certainty, sort of the, the fundamentalist view: why have free speech if you know your if you know your rights? Okay, and one other one um, other one that's important, I think, is the idea that actually free expression causes more harm in the long run. That's a kind of consequentialist argument, an empirical argument, that letting dangerous ideas out into the world is 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 something which is a big risk. And and it's very hard to know how to assess that empirically, but if you took the example of allowing, say, in, in the British context, somebody from a racist political party, there are plenty to choose from these days, but let's take an extreme one. So in my day, the National Front, so we go back, the National Front was overtly campaigning on a racist platform. If you gave free speech to racist politicians who were making offensive comments about people with different skin colours from them, it's genuinely true that there's a risk that that could um, trigger some certain kinds of violence. They're not in a straightforward single cause and effect way. It might create a climate within which that's more expected. 
and there's a genuine argument there about whether that is, you know, the kind of view which ought to be suppressed. I mean, we now have laws which would probably prevent most of those sorts of statements being made. But when Nick Griffin was invited onto the news, uh, was it the Question Time panel? Nick Griffin is the leader of the was the leader of the British National Party, I think, at the time. There was this question about whether that's giving him a platform which he didn't deserve and was dangerous, or whether people like me who who tend to think that extensive freedom of expression is a good thing on the whole, felt this was a wonderful opportunity to present the counter-arguments forcefully, to show the absurdity of some of the positions he was defending in a public forum. But others felt, no, he's still going to send out these dog-whistle messages from that platform, and, and it was a bad thing to give him airtime on, on, on a primetime TV and it's debatable. I mean, it's like in that particular case, I think what happened was there were very well prepared um, panelists who did take him apart and his arguments apart. But that wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion. And it could have been that there, were, there weren't such great panelists and they weren't able to, to counter his arguments on the hoof, as it were. And that could have been a bad consequence of freedom of expression in that particular context. So I think it is. Hard to say for sure that freedom of expression, preserving extensive freedom of expression, will always bring about the best consequence. Because I think blatantly it won't always. But if on the whole or in aggregate it does, maybe there is a strong consequentialist argument for that being the default position. And then look at particular cases on their own merits. But what I do fear is the glee with which some people shut down debate, the, the, it's kind of virtue signaling that says we can't even tolerate you expressing your viewpoint. And I do think there's a risk there that you magnify the um, resentment of the people who hold opposing views to an extent that does risk those views being expressed in more, in more physical ways and I do think personally that there is something usually very different between a conversation and a fight. And I'm for the conversation rather than the fight. <laughs> even if it's even if it's a lively conversation, even if it's a perceived as an aggressive, yeah. intolerant conversation to some extent, that's still better than the, the move to violence. So these are, these are conversations. The conversation about conversations is one which is happening across the whole political spectrum. On the right, you sort of led by Trump, you have these right-wing complaints against the mainstream media blocking out right-wing voices, the social media platforms censoring them. On the left, you sort of have a talk about systemic inequality of speech. You described epistemic inequality, how the white, rich, and male seem to get all the column inches. And even in the centre, represented perhaps by the signatories of the recent Harper's Magazine letter or Yasha Munk's Persuasion project, even in the centre, there's a sense that the right to debate is being shut down by cancel culture. Why has freedom of speech sort of become this, this cause celebre for everybody at the moment? What's, what's happening? Is it, is it the internet? Is it the social media platforms? Is it, is it something else? I think it goes in cycles. It does come to the fore every now and then. There are big issues around freedom of expression that have cropped up before. You know, 
talk about Nazis marching in near Chicago, you know, in the I think it was in the seventies that was a big issue. It talk about freedom of expression in relation to the Vietnam War in America. You know, there are lots of occasions, these sort of flashpoints of freedom of expression that occur. If you go back through history, you'll find plenty of them. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's there there is one now. But obviously there's been a democratization of publication through social media so that everybody with a um, a mobile phone, a smartphone, can contribute potentially to a, a global debate. So, so some people think, well, the consequence of that is minority groups, which don't have a huge number of people in any one country, those people can kind of find each other and become a more powerful force. So this gives new voices more power. That could, those could be extremists, they could be, or they could be just slightly weird, um, eccentric viewpoints that find people who, I mean, if I wanted to, I've got red hair, if I wanted to find a group of other people who have red hair and care very strongly about it, online, I could do that and start contributing to a debate very quickly and become part of the red hair group who pronounce on maybe the kind of abusive language used about red hair people in the in comedy sometimes or something like that i can easily find my peers in that way in a way that would have been almost impossible 20 years ago and so that kind of magnifies things i don't know there have been a number of key tipping points i think in a num in, in several different areas so obviously the black lives matter movement gained so much force from video evidence shared on social media about a horrendous murder, as I would say it, debates about, um, triggered by J.K. Rowling's discussion of transgender people, they've been allowed to magnify in a way that will be harder with newspapers because there's a much wider readership of social media. So we can read her words, we can read the words of the people who disagree strongly with her instantly. And that's a new phenomenon I do think those things do magnify polarised debates and they also can work to our favour because they allow fights for justice to gain momentum and to, to, to enter into the more controlled media by, by force of numbers and, and the power of arguments. So we, we are living in really interesting times for free expression, although... There's a fear of cancel culture, the sense in which people can be, their livelihoods can be damaged on the suspicion that they've done something which is perceived by other people to be beyond the pale. Not even the actual evidence, occurrence of that. It may just be the suspicion that's sufficient for that. In fact, I think we do still have greater freedom of expression, most of us, than has ever been true for humanity. I mean, it's, it's, it's very odd that, you know, we can have this discussion and people in Australia can listen to it as soon as it's released or they can listen in, obviously, parts of the world where they won't be able to listen. I doubt if they'll be listening in China but or maybe Hong Kong now, but they might be listening in, in South Korea or, you know, there, there are so many different places where people can um, interact with the things that we're saying and can be stimulated. They may hate what I'm saying and and... If they do, then then I'll have served a purpose too, because stimulated them to to think in opposition to me. And I think ultimately, at the bottom of, for me, all these questions about free speech at the bottom is like, what kind of 
world do we want? Do we want a world of authority where people just tell you how things are? Or do we want a world where we can have vigorous debate about things that matter to us without fear that because we say something, we may be mistaken, but because we say something that other people don't like, we'll get shut down and we may get prevented from living a flourishing life as a result. It seems to me I want a world which we have extensive freedom of discussion, ideally with a degree of civility, and that's about education, and some control, some limits, because I don't want a world in which paedophiles are allowed to express their desire to have sex with young children in a way that is likely to bring about that actuality. I don't want a world in which false advertising bears no consequence for the false advertiser. But there are areas, particularly in the areas of politics and how we should live, that I think benefit hugely from multiple viewpoints being expressed sincerely in the best possible form and not just going past each other, but engaging at least to some degree with viewpoints which are in stark opposition to them. I'm an, I'm an atheist. You know, I've had lots of discussions <laughs> with religious believers. It's pretty pointless in some ways refining my atheism by chatting to an atheist. The real test is can I respond to the kinds of criticisms that a sincere believer has of that world, world viewpoint, seems to me. It's more fun too. Nigel, this is a great place for us to, to, to wrap and I'm enormously grateful for the chance to talk this through with you. It's been fascinating. We could go on and there are lots and lots of topics we could cover here, but um, I'm going to bring you back to talk to open some of these things up again in the future. Thank you. That was the Parlia podcast from Parlia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion. 